Good morning. Yeah. If we've never met, my name is Chris Barnes. I am the student ministry director here at this campus, and I have worked at Calvary for 11 years. It's been a long time, and it's been a great run. Uh, If we've never met, I want to give you a glimpse into my life. Sometimes it's fun to shake hands before we listen to each other and share this moment. So my wife is an OBGYN resident down at St. Joseph Hospital. She's in her second year of residency, and she loves delivering babies and helping pregnant mommies move into that phase of life. Like she has lives a crazy life right now. Her first year, she delivered more than 100 normal birth babies and then add on top of that C-sections and all those things. And we have two little girls. These are our girls a couple weeks ago. Oh my goodness, oh man. Okay, this was the best Halloween ever. I like had an epiphany of like, this is why these things exist because it was 10 times as good as I've ever experienced Halloween. Like I was walking around behind them and just like, I get it now. I get why parents do it and do this again and again because they love it, but this is so much better. Oh my gosh. Uh, And I'll give you a little gift if you're a parent in this room. You probably have, have this hack, but my wife and I got home Halloween night and we were like, did you get candy? No, did I get candy? Nope, well, uh, that's a problem. So we were like, ah, problem for later. So we went out, went around our neighborhood, got kid, like our kids gathered candy in their buckets and we got home and we looked at our buckets and we were like, ah, oh, sweet, we have candy to give out now. So we shoved a little bit for our girls and sent all that candy right back out of our house. And it was like, oh yeah, Halloween hack for you if you haven't done it before. It was amazing. Ah, uh, okay, this moment, if you're, if you're new, New after a long time, we're in a series working through the book of Hebrews. And this morning is probably the most familiar uh, part of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, you know, like the faith chapter. Sometimes look at it and they're like the heroes of faith. And to help us move into what the author wants to say in the book and chapter 11, let's refresh our minds about why this book exists and what the conversation has been moving into chapter 11. And so the author sees a group of people that he really cares about, and he knows their situation. They're in a season of suffering, and he wants them to not give up, to not drift away, to not throw out their confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And so he put together this letter or sermon so that they would be warned so that they would be encouraged, and so that they would know the deep depth of truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, and because of what he has done, what it means for them and for us and for everyone. And he finishes chapter 10 with these words, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Because a season of suffering uniquely squeezes people and pushes people to a place where they start to have doubts and question. And they're like, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. I don't know if this Jesus thing is worth it. I I remember what life used to be like when I didn't follow Jesus. I'm looking at those people over there and the grass certainly seems greener over there. I don't know if this pain, this suffering, I don't know if I have what it takes to endure. And he finishes and he encourages them. He says, like, we're not, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we have faith and preserve our souls. 
And then he moves into this chapter. What does it look like to have enduring faith? In the midst of a hard season, suffering, hard times, sometimes specifically because you became a follower of Jesus. Like the people that he's writing to, a lot of their suffering has come into their life because they put their faith in Jesus and aligned their life around him. And additional hardship and suffering has come into their life because they're following Jesus. And he moves into this space and he's like, okay, what does it look like to endure? What does it look like to journey through a difficult season and have faith and specifically have faith that pleases God? And so he moves into chapter 11. And as we get into chapter 11, he's going to give two definitions of faith. There's a universal definition of faith that applies to every human. And then he's going to give a specific definition of faith, specifically that pleases God. And so this this universal definition of faith is found in 11, 1 and 2. So Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Humans everywhere, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or another belief set, we have faith and we're going to place our faith in what we hope for today, what we hope for tomorrow, what we hope for for life after this one. We're going to find an object to place our faith in. And humans, this is a thing that humans do. Like when you got into your car and drove here, you placed your faith in your car that it would get get here, and you trusted every other driver that they would do what they're supposed to do so that everybody got here safe. Like, this is a thing that people do. And what made the people in this chapter unique? Like, what was it about their actions and their faith that set them apart to be remembered in this story is that they found the object that could uniquely give them life. They found the trustworthy object of faith. And so if this is a thing that you and I are going to do, and if we pay so much close attention to lots of things in our life, and we find a trustworthy object to place our faith in with lots of things, like if somebody gave you a million dollars today, you would go through a long, lengthy process to find a trustworthy money manager. Like you're not gonna give your money to somebody that you don't trust. You're not gonna place your faith in somebody to manage your money that you don't think is a good money manager. And you're not gonna do that. And so for us in this room, if we, we go through that process with things in our lives like money, how much more so is it important to think about where we're placing our faith and trust with our life, our life today and our life forever. And so what is the the definition that the author gives of a faith that pleases God? If we're gonna find the object that makes all the difference today and tomorrow, let's find out that definition of faith that the author gives us. And And he works through stories through Genesis one through five, and then he gives us the definition in Genesis or Hebrews 11:6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, being God, 
For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So there's three components that he mentions here about this faith that pleases God. And it is a combination of three things. If you're going to draw near to God, it starts with belief. Like belief that he exists, that he is the God above every other God, that he actually spoke this world into creation. Faith in him that pleases him starts there. But knowing and believing that he is God and that he created everything is not enough. Jesus's brother, James, in his book, he notices this reality that there are spiritual beings who know this about God, who know his power, sees his power, know that he created everything and are afraid of his power, but they're not with him, they're actually against him. And so there's another element in this faith that pleases God of trusting that he is good. The author of Hebrews said it like this in in 6. that God rewards those who seek him. If I'm going to draw near, I have to trust that he is good. If I'm going to draw near to God, I need to know that he is going to receive me because I'm not perfect. What is he going to do with my imperfection? Is he going to forgive me? Is he going to be angry? What is he going to do with me if I draw near? And there's an element I need to be convinced that God is good if I'm going to draw near. If you're going to follow somebody, like here's the thing about you and me. We will never follow somebody that we're not convinced is good. You're not going to align your life today. Like your friends, your bosses, this is how we do life. If we're not convinced that the people around us actually have our good in mind, we're not going to align our life and actually follow them and be with them. And so it's belief that he exists. Trust in his goodness, and then a demonstration of that trust. I can tell you anything that I want, and you can tell me anything you want. Like, I can portray myself. I can can tell you that I have trust. I can tell you all the things in the world and trick you. I can even trick myself. I can trick myself into thinking that I deeply trust these things, that I deeply hold these convictions. But there are moments that matter that reveal what I actually trust in. At the depth, at the core of me, at the depth of the core of you, the demonstration of our life reveals what is the object of our trust. What is the object of our belief? That's why it takes all three. Because our lives demonstrate where the object of our faith actually is. So seasons of suffering can actually be a blessing because it helps us have clarity about ourselves. It helps us have clarity about the world around us. And I want to move into a question and ask, okay, how does the author of Hebrews get to this definition of faith, this combination of belief, trust, and demonstration? And this definition is connected to the story of Enoch. And you're like, oh yeah, my favorite biblical character, Enoch, awesome, sweet. And so here, let's, let's see what the author of Hebrews has to say about Enoch. This is 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death 
and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God and without faith. It is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's this human man who lived that had such a faith that God looked at him and was like, I am not gonna allow you to experience the curse of death. I'm like, whoa, what is that story? That's gotta be an amazing story. And if you've never Look, like Ben to that story, let's go there together. So Genesis 5 is where we get Enoch and his story. So page four in my Bible, all the way back at the beginning. So if you don't have a, a Bible, it's okay. It'll pop up right up here. And so here, here's the amazing story of Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And you're like, uh, is there something missing here? Like, how did the author of Hebrews get to this definition, this robust, complicated, full definition that it's belief, trust in his goodness, and a demonstration of that faith from those three verses. And I don't know about you. Have you ever had this experience reading through the Bible and you're like, could I get more details? Like, why are there so few details? Am I supposed to like know how the puzzle works? Do I have like a decoder ring to be able to figure this out? And it's like, what? how do I get what the biblical authors seem to be getting in the New Testament from these Old Testament stories? I want to introduce you to something. If you've never been introduced to some of the techniques that the Jewish authors used in putting this story together, because they lived in a time and a place where they had to figure out how to say more with less. You know, like the writing materials were very scarce. And so they had to develop techniques to be able to communicate more, more meaning, more ideas with less words and less space. And so repetition is a key thing that they developed. And the, every biblical author uses this skill of repetition and this technique of repetition, first within a passage and then between stories. Because at the beginning of the story, there's some key foundational ideas that are established. And then future biblical authors will connect future stories back into those original stories and original meanings and import meaning from those stories forward so that they don't have to use more words, but they, everybody who's reading, if you can see these things, knows what they're talking about. So let's look at Genesis 5 again. Is there a phrase or word that's repeated? And there's something that's repeated twice. Enoch walked with God. That specific phrase is repeated twice. And then you ask yourself, and you're like, okay, that in these three verses, in Enoch's story, it is significant that he walked with God. Okay, is there somewhere already in the biblical story that these ideas have showed up in a significant way? And the answer is yes. So go to Genesis 
8. That's one page left in my Bible. And here's Genesis 3, 8. And they, being Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the, ma the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. What did God come to do with Adam and Eve? He came to walk with Adam and Eve. What had they just got done doing in the story? They were just tricked into losing their trust in God's goodness. God's enemy came into their life and he said, look, that, you know that tree right over there that God told you to not eat of? It's because he doesn't want you to be better than you are. It's because he knows that you'll be wiser and bigger and stronger. So he wants you to not have access to the good life, the best life. He's actually holding out on you. And they were like, you know what? I think you're right. I'm not so sure God is as good as he says he is. I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm, I think I'm going to trust you. And the, the story portrays them. They lose their trust in God's goodness. And they actually start listening to God's enemy's voice. And they place their trust in his voice. And it's more than a simple act of disobedience. They have aligned their life. They have placed their faith, their trust, their belief, and demonstrated their trust and faith in God's enemy. And God shows up to walk with them. And their life is revealing where they have placed their faith. Because when God shows up to walk with them, they're now afraid of him. They don't think he's good anymore. And so they're hiding from him. And the author of Genesis, when you see this connection between stories, sometimes you're meant to compare them and sometimes you're meant to contrast the two stories. And so Enoch walked with God when Adam and Eve did not. And you're like, in Adam and Eve's story, they just lost their trust in God's goodness. They fundamentally placed the object of their faith as God's enemy. And the, the life that they're demonstrating to live demonstrates where the object of their faith is. And the author gets to Enoch and he says, Enoch walked with God. And you're like, I know exactly what Enoch did. He believed. He trusted in God's goodness. And he aligned his life so that his life would demonstrate his trust and belief in God. This language of walking with God becomes synonymous with the theme of faith in God throughout the rest of the biblical story. In the Old Testament and in the New, the New Testament authors leverage this walking word and walking language constantly. And it's not by accident. It's an intentional thing that they want you to think about this theme that has been going on from Genesis 3 and Genesis 5. And the next person that the author of Hebrews highlights the story of his faith is Noah. So Genesis 6, look at Genesis 6 right next to it. Let's, let's see what Genesis 6 has to say about Noah. 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And you're like, I know exactly what Noah did. It was what Enoch did. It, was, it is what Adam and Eve did not do. 
And then there's, in Hebrews 11, example after example after example of people in real life situations who had their unique race to run. And they, among all the other options, among all the other voices, they chose to trust God's voice and place their faith in him and align their life around their trust and belief and follow him among all the other options. And so what did Noah, what, what was unique about his faith? What was significant to remember about his faith? And let's go back to Hebrews 11. Verse seven, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Have you ever felt like you were the only one who had faith? Like at your job, in your family potentially, at school, in a friend group? Have you ever felt like you were alone and the only one who cared about doing right, the only one who cared about God and his ways and living faithfully to him? If you're in a season where you feel alone, maybe you can get encouragement from Noah because he was a unique person in his generation that walked with God. And the stories that follow are examples like that. And the, the author of Hebrews moves next into Abraham and Sarah, this couple that God uniquely chose to carry out his purposes for the world through. And there's something that you and I can learn and remember from their story that is something that is really helpful to remember in this conversation of faith. And, and here's the thing to remember that we will see demonstrated by the life of Abraham and Sarah is that perfection is not what God requires. It is faith that he desires. From beginning of the story to the end, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it has never been about perfection. It has always been about faith. And it always been about the same kind of faith. It is significant that the author of Hebrews goes back to the beginning of the story for the definition of what faith in God is and what faith in God means. And so from beginning to end, it's always been about walking with God, believing that he is God, trusting in his goodness and demonstrating that I have actually placed my faith in him and my life will demonstrate because I will live to the core convictions of what I believe and where my trust lies. And when he chooses Abraham and Sarah, he knows who he's choosing. He knows that he's choosing deeply flawed, deeply sinful humans, just like you and me. Like Abraham and Sarah are a complicated mix of good and evil, just like me. And if you sit back and read the story of Abraham and Sarah and go home and read that story today, you're going to see how God comes behind Abraham's failures and sin and protects and heals and fixes the problems that he creates 
And same with Sarah. And what does Abraham, what, what sets Abraham and Sarah up as examples to, to look at and remember? It's their faith. It's not their moral example. Because I guarantee you, if you're a dad in this room and have future hopes and dreams for your daughter's husband, it's definitely not a man like Abraham. I definitely do not want my girls to marry a man like Abraham because he is deeply sinful. It's his faith in moments that matter and his life is aligned around listening to God's voice above the rest. And so when God shows up in Genesis 12 and talks to Abraham, it's actually the same word. In our English, it says, go, and Abraham went. It's actually God shows up, you know, like it's been translated from Hebrew, right? The original word is, God told Abraham, walk to a country that I'm going to show you. And Abraham walked where God told him to go. And then Sarah's story. Have you, have you ever gotten to a moment where you're like, I think God lied to me. He, he gave me hope, and I was excited about the words that he spoke to me. But nothing is different. Nothing has changed. I don't think he's going to come through. Sarah has walked through this journey. She is an example of a person who lived for 60-some years without a child. And in her time and place, it was a unique and deep, shameful experience for a woman to not be able to have a baby. And so she has lived with shame in her culture. And God comes to her and says, you're going to have a son. And I'm sure there was so much excitement and hope for the future that birthed in her. And then two decades passes and nothing. And so much so that her body gets old and stops normally, naturally having the ability to have children. And I can only imagine the complicated mix of trying to believe in God's words and being like, I don't, I don't think he's going to come through. I don't know how he could come through. I think he lied to me. I think, I don't know what to do in this situation. Like, do I stay with him? It doesn't seem like he's trustworthy in this moment. And God shows up in their story after her body is no longer able to have children and speaks and says, in a year's time, you're going to have a kid. And it's in this moment that she considers his faithfulness. They didn't really understand what God wanted to do in his plan and his timing. From their perspective, it took a long time and a lot of patience, but he wanted to demonstrate his power to be able to bring life in a dead place. He brought human life out of an old dead womb to demonstrate his power to be able to bring life out of death. And the author of Hebrews, even when he's reflecting on Abraham's testing to offer up his son, Isaac, when God shows up and says, I want you to offer your only son as a sacrifice to me. The author of Hebrews knows this truth that God has already demonstrated in this family's life, that he's able to bring life out of a dead place. And he's like, okay, this is a test, 
to Abraham. And if you're reading the story, you know, like you and me as the readers in Genesis get a little elbow nudge by the author. And it says, God tested Abraham. So you and me, we know this is a test and a specific test. Abraham and Isaac and Sarah aren't really aware of it, but they know of God's goodness and power and how he has demonstrated his faithfulness already in their life. And so they, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, demonstrate their trust in God's goodness and he reveals himself to be faithful. If you're in a season of suffering, if you're in a season of hardship, if you're in a season where you're like, I don't know if I have what it takes to keep going. Maybe these stories in Genesis, Hebrews 11, can be encouragement to us to keep going. There are seasons where we're not gonna understand. There are seasons where it doesn't make sense. There are seasons where it doesn't seem God is good. But each of these stories has examples as warnings of people who place their faith in other objects. And it is never worth it to place our faith in another object. And what makes Jesus uniquely trustworthy to be the object of our belief, to be the object of our trust, and to be the object that we align our lives around? What makes him uniquely trustworthy? What makes him somebody worthy of our life's trust and devotion. And the author of Hebrews, you know, like, I wish I could journey through all of them, but the author of Hebrews journeys through all of these examples in Hebrews 11 and finishes with these words at the end of 11. So let's go to the end of chapter 11. And all those, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So for all those who place their faith in Jesus, Jesus is God, if we place our faith in him, there's a future promise of being renewed, restored, being made perfect. And what makes Jesus the object that can make us perfect, the object that is trustworthy of our hope today and hope tomorrow, faith today, faith tomorrow. He moves on in chapter 12 and, and his conviction, the author of Hebrews is convinced that it's because he's the author and perfecter of faith. And here, here in verse two, verse one Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne. He's like, what makes Jesus the one to look to, the one to place our faith in, when you and I are looking for a trustworthy, faithful object to come through on the promises that it gives us. 
is he's the author and perfecter. If Jesus is God, he was there at the beginning and it's his plan. It was his plan to create a a good home where he was gonna be at home with humans, where there was gonna be no separation between God's home and human's home and God's presence and human's presence. They were meant to be together from the beginning. And it was his plan to give humans the rule of that world. Like it was his plan to carry out his good purposes and his blessings. And he wanted to carry out them through humans. And he needed faithful humans to be able to carry out his blessing and his goodness to the entire world. After Genesis 3, there's an additional piece. He needed a faithful human who was able to do battle and defeat his enemy. And so this is the story from the beginning, and it is his plan. And he's the one who perfected faith. He's the one who came and was faithful and passed all of the tests and uniquely did battle with his enemy and defeated his enemy. And here, he says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross was this moment where Jesus was doing battle with his enemy to defeat the power of sin and death that God's enemy brought into his good world and provided a way for you and me to have access to God's presence and this future promise of being made perfect. Because every every person in this list in Hebrews 11, whose stories are contained in the Old Testament, they didn't experience the full fulfillment of the promises that God gave them. And they endured to the end, holding fast to those promises. And you and me, we look to Jesus's example and we're like, if I draw near to Jesus, does he understand what my life is like? Does he understand how hard it seems to live faithfully to him? And the answer is yes. The author of Hebrews has already described to us in chapter five, the moment that Jesus was perfected in his faithfulness as a human. And there's an almost direct quote from Luke 22. And I wanna finish with looking at Jesus, looking to Jesus's example of faith so that we can be encouraged by his example to he is the object and the faithful and trustworthy object that we can place our faith in today and tomorrow. And let's go to Luke 22. This is the night before Jesus died. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he knows what the day after this one, he knows what the next day is gonna be about. He knows he's gonna physically suffer He knows he's going to be beaten. He knows the emotional toll that's about to be taken on him. And it's already wreaking havoc in his mind and in his heart and in his body. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And when he came up to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' human desire is to not go through with the cross. He specifically asks his heavenly father for a different way. The cup that he's referring to is an image from the Old Testament about this moment, about God's anger and justice coming. And God's anger and justice about the sin and injustice in the world is about to come on Jesus the next day. And he's like, can we have a different way? Because I'm not so convinced tonight. But in this moment, I'm not going to trust what I can see. I'm not going to trust what I feel. I'm not going to trust what's raging in my body at this moment. Not my will, but yours be done. Because I'm going to trust in your goodness, even though I might not be able to see it fully in this moment. I'm going to trust in your goodness. And then the author continues, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a medical condition. When anxiety and stress fill human bodies, sometimes they respond in this medical condition where drops of blood come out through our glands like sweat, and it mixes with sweat. And so Jesus's physical body is trying to figure out how to deal with the agony and the anxiety and the stress of what he knows he's about to experience the next day. Everything inside of Jesus is raging against him to not do what he's been called to do the next day. And despite everything in his life that was raging against him in that moment, he says, not my will be done but yours be done. So that he died the death that you and I deserve. So that he can become the source of eternal life for all those who place their faith in him. He is the trustworthy object. He knows what it is to be you and me and to be pushed to the brink and to be put to the test. He has compassion because he's been there. And he is the trustworthy object because he uniquely was the human who was faithful. And he was the human who was perfect. And when we place our faith in him, his perfection can become our perfection. He is the trustworthy object of your faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this moment and thank you for your word and your story to help us see you. Help us believe that you are who you say you are. Help us to trust in your goodness even in seasons where it's hard to trust. And help us to place our faith in you as the only trustworthy object. Amen.